Welcome to the Honor Roll Podcast, the podcast that helps you level up your RPG. Tabletop, LARP, mush, and everything in between. We're not better gamers than you. We just have different experiences to share. And maybe we can help you have more fun at your role-playing game. Because the, the only, only way, way to, to win, win a role-playing role game, game is to have fun. fun. I'm Ryan, I'm the curmudgeon, and joining me as always is Carrie the Legend. Hi. And not Jason. Nope. The absent. Because... He's a liar face. He was like, oh, I'll be there this I'll week. I'll be there. I, I, be, could, I, I be, could do it now. I'll be very happy. Uh, my, my TVA outage is over. Yeah. And then today he sent us a text that was like, I'm full of shit. I'm, I'm working midnight. Apparently I'm going back to work because <laughs> I think that work is more important than my friends. Yep. Yeah. 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 So there. No, we love Jason very, very much. Do we? Well, we like him. <laughs> so there uh anyway we have some people to shout out to we do oh okay we're, yeah we're, we we're just i was i was waiting for you to be like we have a patreon we do we have a patreon uh you can go to patreon.com slash on a roll podcast and if you decide you'd like to you can offer to keep us on the air by giving a little bit of money uh, every month, and yeah. it will help pay for uh, our soundboard and our hosting fees, and uh, our f- we we like to eat before we we mm-hmm. record and things like that. And you get stuff in exchange as well. You get free stuff like postcards, prints, books. I'm so excited! The postcards are on the way. The new postcards are coming for season three. And the best part of everything is that you can also get a shout out on the air. So who right. do we who do we have? All right. We have Cameron the Favorite. Oh, Cameron the Favorite. We've got Joe Hines with Lost Colonies. Yeah. We have Ryan Galeata with the Byways Arc. Okay. We have Ryan Martin, who I've not seen any food recently. I know. We're very disappointed with We're very worried. Um, We have Drew Stevens, who recently shared a bunch of um, links to YouTube for uh, Egyptian mythology with me, and it was really helpful. Interesting. Interesting. Very cool. Uh, we have, uh, Salam Halibi. Halabi? Oh, Salim so, Halabi. Halabi, I was so close. It's a trap. It's a trap. We have Joe Hines with the Werewolf Podcast. Uh-huh. Which is an okay podcast. It's all right. It's all right. We have Joel Eastland. Oh. Ooh. 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 He keeps texting me and he, while I'm, we're doing this. Oh. So stop it, Joel. And then we have No Cold Trip. Noah Coltrip? What about Noah Coltrip? I'm glad you asked. This week, Noah is going to Smithfield, Virginia to visit the world's oldest ham. The old what? The world's oldest ham is at the Isle of Wight Museum in Smithfield, Virginia. Do you remember how just the other day we were all wondering, (laughs) where could you go see the world's oldest ham? Well, you can look no further than the Isle of Wight Museum home of P.D. Gwaltney's famous pet ham. What is the name? P.D. Gwaltney. Gwaltney? <laughs> you may have heard of Gwaltney bacon. <laughs> we have some in the fridge right now. P.D. Gwaltney had a pet ham 
He made a collar for it and even took it out to shows. No! This museum actually highlights the entire history of Smithfield ham, which dates all the way back to 1902. <laughs> P.D. Gwaltney's ham is not just the world's oldest ham, it's the world's oldest edible ham. No! That's right. You could still eat this ham. It's even in the Guinness Book of World Records. Oh, no! Noah! Do we have anybody else? Oh, wait, I need, I just need a second. Oh. Okay, and then our last patron is the patron saint of honor roll, Sarah. Well, if you would like a shout out on the podcast, you can go to honor roll podcast uh, on Patreon and back us and maybe you can get some free stuff and some shout outs. Cool. Okay, yes. When last we left our intrepid adventurers, we were sitting right here at this table recording a podcast and here we are again. Uh, anything we never new? leave. We never leave. You this got anything table. new, Carrie? Ah, uh, just I, I've been doing. I've, I finished the commission of the horse finally. Sweet. I hate horses. Yeah, I really do. It's like been like the thing in my life hmm. for this past week. Horses. I hate horses. Yeah. They're big. They're scary. They have demon structures. They do have demon structures. They do. I yeah. don't. I don't like them. I feel I the like same them. way about kindergarten classes. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Kindergarten classes. Horses. I see the. Comparison. Yeah. It's mostly it's the demon structures. <laughs> this, oh, I'm, I'm losing it. So anyway, what have you been up to, right? I wish I could say that I've been up to something, but I really haven't. I've had a really boring week. Well, you were working on the stuff for the gun belt. Yeah, I'm still working on the gun belt stuff, but I mean, that's really it. And mm -hmm. it seems like it should be really exciting, but right now it isn't yet. No, it's not because you're being grumpy about it. I can tell. Yeah. Oh, well. So there. All right. Well, that was that was super exciting. And Jason's at work. Yeah. So that's what's been going on with us. So there. Let's go to combat rounds. Okay. Today we have kind of an interesting, cool little show. It's a little more serious than normal, but I hope we'll make sure that it isn't too serious. So serious. Yeah, but we are going to be joined by Tim Clancy, who is from theinfomullet.com. He is also a gamer and LARPer, and he's going to be telling us how we can better understand uh, and, and interpret and know the things that are to know about uh, the coronavirus pandemic. So welcome, Tim, to, to the program. Yay. Yay. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah. Tim, why don't you take a second first and tell us uh, why, why you are at all qualified to talk about the COVID-19 pandemic with us? Who be you? <laughs> well, besides staying in a Holiday Inn Express last night, um, my background <laughs> is as a, a simulation scientist and researcher. Uh, my normal area of study is violence and instability, and I create simulations of very complex phenomena that ranges from an individual person like a terrorist all the way up to a policy you may put in place at a national level. So in building those simulation models and, and studying for that and doing research on that, I've actually built pandemic models. I've built actual simulations of a pandemic going through a city, through a country, how you might build the response. I've studied the background on it. And um, I also have a background in work with the government. I've, I've done work with the DOD 
and other government agencies and how policies are crafted, doing data analysis for them, helping inform them. So I took that experience when the pandemic came out, kind of realized what happened was about to happen and sort of began focusing on it in late January, early February and have been pretty much focused on it since then. And you do that now primarily your outlet is the infomullet.com. Correct. So I also run a blog um, called The Info Mullet. It has a Facebook page, The Info Mullet. And what we do is I try and bring more context to complex news. Could be foreign affairs, could be the economy, could be high level policy. But since the pandemic has broke, it's been pretty much focused on COVID-19 and issues related with that. Well, the whole world has. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's not really a whole. I mean, here we are on a role playing game podcast talking about it now. <laughs> So, <laughs> so as you described what you do for, for your work, like what you do, I just kept thinking, it sounds like you work with James Bond. Like you'd be the person James Bond would go to and be like, tell me what's happening. Tell me what to do. So if you see like a Marvel movie or some James Bond movie where they're walking in front of all those people with the computers who are doing fancy stuff on the computers, mm -hmm. I'm like three rows back <laughs> in one of those computers helping type things out and get them information. They may like turn around and say, give us all the lampposts in Bulgaria. And, you know, someone's there in the back furiously <laughs> typing. That's what I do. Excellent. All right. And then uh, the other connection, of course, is that you are a role player. Correct. So you're, you're, there was just long enough pause. I thought he was going to go, no. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> role playing. What's what? that? Well, tell me about this role play. So you... Is that like reenactment? <laughs> oh, That's the SCA, right? Oh my gosh, Ryan. <laughs> I just started a Twitter war by saying that. Yeah, you did. <laughs> so you, much like, much like us, you're, you have a long history of world of darkness, parlor LARPs. Yeah, I actually, I, I, I had never heard of White Wolf until I was grabbed by a friend right when I came back from college in uh, 1993. And he, he drove me over to Seattle and put me in the Elliott Bay bookstore where I learned literally the world of darkness through LARP. So my first exposure to the world of darkness at all was in, in the Elliott Bay bookstore when the Camarillo was just founding in 1993. Nice. And it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. I've always loved the highs you get and the fun you get with large complicated, intricate sort of salon or boffer style LARP. And I've been doing it for 30 years now. That's fantastic. What, is. what was your first game? My first game was actually Dungeons and Dragons basic, like so many people. And it wasn't right. any great like group of friends meeting. It was my mom had bought it. <laughs> so in some ways it was good. My mom encouraged yeah. it and she was the dungeon master my sister was it, and I remember I played an elf who used the 10-foot pole to try and pull vault over a carrying crawler, and we all died in, like, <laughs> you know, the first 10 minutes of the game. So, um, But that, that, that experience stuck out with me, and, and of course, uh, I was hooked from then on. That's great. Like, did you guys play on holidays? Like, it's New Year's Eve. Let's play D&D. &D. Oh, we, we never played again. That was the oh. only time. <laughs> <laughs> we played with my parents, and in, and then I'm I had the you know there weren't many gamers where I grew up, so I was constantly that that little nerd making level one characters and rolling the dice and everything in the hope that one day I would find a game to play. Mm, Probably okay. until about uh, middle school when I picked up Car Wars and BattleTech <gasps> and started getting Wars. more into those sort of board games and did that uh, through high school. That's fantastic. All right, then one more question on this uh this in this direction. What's your favorite game? It's it's I think it's probably best to describe it as a type of game. Fair. 
I like large games that have hundreds of players all interacting together where sort of political systems emerge, conflicts emerge, healthy conflicts, of course, but really good stories that spread out over large groups of people. So whether it's a boffer LARP that has a network or something like the Camarilla or the Mind's Eye Society or Underground Theater, One World by Night, those, even EVE Online, anywhere where there's hundreds or thousands of players and you're kind of working within this real ecosystem, that's the kind of game I enjoy. It's kind of almost like you're LARPing one of your own simulations. <laughs> there's there's a whole nother uh, episode on using, <laughs> thinking of LARP games as simulations and what I've learned in simulation science applying to game design. I've learned a ton about how to look at games in a different way doing simulation science. It's very, very close pathway. Oh, that's wonderful. Maybe once Jason gets back, we'll, we'll bring you back on and we can do that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, we wanted to, we thought that since you are both a gamer and you are a, um, a systems analyst and, and understand all of these complex things, uh, we thought that maybe it would be a great idea to, to have you come on and kind of talk about the pandemic and what we're seeing and what the, the processes and things that are happening around us are uh, and, and do it in a way that maybe can be simple or or put into gaming terms or, or, you know, use some stories or analogies to kind of help, help everybody, you know, get through all of the, the murkiness and, and make wise decisions on their own about what's, what's going on. Uh, so I, I think that I kind of feel like we should probably start since we're talking about COVID-19 and it has become kind of a, a bit of a partisan issue, even though uh, it, it shouldn't be. Because it's affecting everyone. Uh, I, I thought it would be wise if we just come right out the gate and just kind of say, you know, like Carrie tends to be pretty liberal. Oh, what? Me? No. Uh, I, I tend to be a left-leaning <laughs> centrist. Uh, and uh, and what about what about you, Tim? So I, I declare as a radical moderate, which means that I'm very passionate about individual liberties, but also try and moderate the extremes on both sides. And that kind of means I spend a lot of time criticizing power, especially presidential power. So I am typically uh, a very strong critic of whoever is in office because I think that's the most important office we have. But um, yeah, I would put myself not in the center by an averaging, but sort of embracing a lot of individual liberty causes and then making sure that the extremes on either side don't kind of box us into unworkable solutions or further partisan divide. Oh, all right. All right. So that's what I've just done was I've armed our listeners with uh, how to, you know, how to respond angrily to us. <laughs> Exactly. Hey, the people that respond angry to us don't actually listen to us. They just respond angry. That's true. So That's true. Okay. This can't be any more controversial than uh, the blackface oh at LARP show. So. Oh. <laughs> I'm hanging up now. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right? Well, tell us what we know about the virus and, and, and what's going on with, with the risk of infection and, and how it spreads and things like that. Sure. So I think to put this in context, because this is a novel virus, one of the things that is so different about this experience that's going to permeate through everything we talk about today is that it's kind of like getting a game where you only get the rule book a paragraph at a time and it's randomly assembled. So what we know now is a lot different than what we knew back in January. And I think a lot of this murkiness and confusion from everything from what is the virus to policy 
can be traced back to this fact that we're still learning as we go. So it's really like picking up a game and instead of getting the full rule book where you can read all the rules and understand it all and everyone has the same knowledge, we're only getting bits and pieces of that rule book of the virus itself and it's only coming out over time. So what we know now um, is that it obviously, as people have heard, it spreads through droplets in the air, that's person to person transmission. And you can think of it as having certain characteristics. It takes, if we say it takes about a thousand droplets to become infected, well, each cough that you give may have 200 million droplets. So if someone coughs in a room, these are gonna spread out in the room and be in the air for a few minutes. They're gonna fall to the ground, they're gonna get on surface, and it's gonna create pretty much fill that room with these droplets. Now, over time, those will go away. If I'm talking to you, they will exit at a slower rate. And the way we get the virus, the way we get infected is a very simple way of thinking of exposure to these particles over time. If you and I are just passing by for a few seconds and you say hello, that's not a lot of time for the particles that you're infected with to come out and get to me. But if you and I are in the same room for 10 minutes or 20 minutes, that's a lot of accumulated exposure. And so when we think about how does the virus spread, well, it spreads anytime you get people in a space where the air is not being circulated well, or they're close to each other, even if they're outside, if they're talking to each other, but they're standing near each other, and the louder we talk, the more we shout, scream, sneeze, cough, anything that you can think of as pushing your breath out faster, the more virus particles get out. And what this has led to us is a lot of these rules that we use and things like, do you wear a mask? Do you not wear a mask? What can be open or closed really boil down to this equation of how many viral particles are being released at what rate and what level of exposure you're getting as a factor over time. Um, that's the basics of how it works. Now, we know now that everyone can get infected and everyone can pass on. Earlier, there were questions that maybe kids didn't catch it or maybe kids weren't carrier. As this knowledge, as we've learned more about the rule book of the pandemic, we know that kids can be infected. They can infect other people. We know that it's no longer just an elderly that, you know, originally it was, well, if you're not old, you don't need to worry about it. We know now that everyone can get it. You may um, suffer consequences at different rates, and we can get into that later, but pretty much everyone can get it. Everyone can pass it on to someone else. And the real challenge is most of the people who have it they may not even have symptoms. So it's not immediately obvious that this is, if I was standing in front of you, there's no way for me to tell you're infected or if I'm managing a state or a country, it's not easy for me to see where the virus is at any given point in time, which is why this is so hard to sort of nail down and react to. One of the things, uh, you know, folks who listen to the show know that I, I work in uh, the nursing home industry in public relations. And uh, I've, I've been doing crisis communication work for so much for my day job uh since the end of february with all of this and uh and, and as is always the case you know any of this that i'm about to say is is me speaking for only myself and and not for my my day job uh but one of the things that nurses that we've talked to have spoken about is how you know the, that when they would do a rack of tests you know they would they would test the, the couple of places where they could get tests to test the whole building, they would come back and just, they, they were stunned by, you know, you would have 80, 90 out of, you know, 150 tests come back positive and no, none of them were sick at all. But the problem is that once you get sick, it, it goes from like zero to a thousand in like an hour. 
You know, they, they would check, yeah. they would check on someone and they would be like, haha, I'm fine. Woo. And then they would come back in an hour and they were sending them to the hospital because they couldn't breathe. Yeah. And this is the, I think what you're tapping into here is the second reason this has been so hard is the time delays that are involved. If you and I are in the same room and I get infected by you, it's going to be four to five days until that infection has made it that maybe I have symptoms, maybe I don't. But I usually won't so show symptoms till like the ninth day. That gives me five days to be walking around infecting other people. And so one of the hardest things I've tried to get people to think about, whether they're a policy maker or an EMS technician on the front line, is where we know now what's going on is always in the past of where the virus is. We're always playing catch up to where the virus is. And that's what's hard is that it's always ahead of us. And we need to think ahead to catch up to where the virus is now so we can make better decisions. That time lag is very difficult for people to get their heads around. And it leads to a lot of the decisions that I think in retrospect, people regret, but they don't realize it at the time because they just don't know. What we're doing today won't show up on any data for nine days. Exactly. If, yeah, on average, and it could be longer. Uh, in, 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 in South Korea, just last week, they had one person go to five clubs in a night, <gasps> exposed to 1,500 people. Oh. Um, they that, Those exposures led to 6,000 people. They did track them all down in a very, I mean, it was a good, 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 good effort by South Korea. But you think about how fast one person, one night in five nightclubs, 1,500 direct exposures, 5,500 indirect exposures, over 120 positive cases now found in four days. So that's, you multiply, you, this is why things like um, choirs, a choir was singing in a, si a, a, a gymnasium volleyball size court. Think of about a volleyball size, how you play on it. A small choir was in there. 75% of the people got infected because it's in the air. It's circulating around. And this is, I think, that the challenge is we didn't know this at first. We didn't realize how virulent it was. We didn't realize how easy it spread. But by the time we know, it's almost too late. And you, you've lived that. I mean, you've lived that firsthand. I'm going to ask kind of the, the basic questions that some of this I know the answer to, some of this I don't. But uh, these are the questions that people get when, when right. they're, they're talking to someone who actually can give them some answers. So how does this compare to the flu? Because cause isn't this just, you know, a bad flu? It's just a bad flu. <laughs> so this is one of those things where I say, like, because we didn't have the rule book early on, we, we saw a paragraph out of context. It's like we took a paragraph out of um, out of the, the World of Darkness book, the, the By Night Studios book, and we read about computers and hacking. We said, oh, this game's like Shadowrun. You know, the first thing we had, we <laughs> tried right. to compare it to what we know. And, and, and the problem is these ideas begin to anchor in people. This thing is nothing like the flu from a um, effect standpoint or from a consequence. So the flu, uh, the influenza, you know, it comes in every year. If you get it, we have treatments for it. We have vaccines that prevent you from getting it. And once it's over, unless you have a complication, it's basically over. Um, also, the types of organs that the flu affects, you know, the types of circumstances you're going to have are not the same as COVID-19. COVID-19, we don't have the treatment, we don't have the vaccine, but it's a lot more now, we're thinking it's more blood-related and not just respiratory. The flu doesn't have any blood-related effects. We're finding that it causes organ failure a lot of times. It has a, um, I can speak from personal experience, if you have the flu and you get over it, you're done. You know, you're moving on with your life. I got out of the hospital over three weeks ago. I'm still recovering and I had a moderate case. So the lingering effects 
of COVID-19 are much worse than the flu, even if you don't have a life-threatening experience, which certainly I, I didn't have a life-threatening, but the time it takes to recover, to get your lung capacity back. And all of these things are, we need to be always remembered, this is a novel virus, it has its own rule book, and we, we're learning as we go. From a macro standpoint on the flu, you think about the flu each year causes between 12 to 17,000 deaths a year. We went through that in COVID-19 in less than three weeks from late March to early April. The worst flu season recently is 2018. I think there were 80,000 deaths. We just passed that a couple days ago. So every comparison that is made between something we think we know what this game is, like, oh, this game's like Shadowrun or this game's like Battletech. No, it's a different game. It's a different set of rules, and we need to treat it with the rules it has and play the game that's in front of us, not try and play some other game we're familiar with or we're going to be making the wrong decisions. The uh, the other one that we hear is, is you know, why aren't people protesting or this? Why don't we shut down the economy for car wrecks? Because car accidents kill this many people every year. <laughs> Well, the, the way I describe it is, you know, car wrecks are dangerous. And over the last hundred years we've had cars, we have developed rules of the road. We've developed increasing safe car vehicles. We've developed seat belts, bumpers, uh, anti-collision tech. Every year we're advancing what we know. And there's an existing amount of freeways. If you've ever been in Atlanta, there's an existing amount of cars on that road. And every day there will be certain accidents that we accept as part of traffic deaths. And that's fair to say over the entire course of the year, there's probably about 38,000 of those. That's a, but that's the deaths that we have with all those built-in capabilities and structure in place. The coronavirus or novel virus is like taking an entire another traffic worth of Atlanta and dumping it on top of the existing freeway. But these cars have no safety mechanisms. They have no <laughs> bumpers. They have no seat belts. They're the, the things that would keep us safe in a car and in this case, in the virus, it's things like the vaccine and the treatment. So vaccine helps you keep from getting it. Treatment means if you get it, it's less worse. With the flu, we have Tamiflu. If you go into the hospital and get sick with the flu, they'll give you a Tamiflu. It'll help you get better. We don't have any of those with this. And that is why the deaths are accumulating so fast. So this thing blew through. You know, every time I've seen a comparison of, oh, it's not as bad as cars, well, that's someone sitting at a point in time and not thinking ahead. By the time we're two weeks later from that, it's already blown through that marker. And I've seen it go through flu deaths, car deaths, uh, um, you name it. It's now the seventh leading cause of, if, it, if COVID had been around for a full year, which it hasn't, it'd be the seventh leading cause of death having exceeded hypertension, um, car accidents, uh, diabetes. I mean, and this is again, only in about six weeks. So the, the pace and velocity, it's that dropping another load of cars on the freeway system. That's what makes this different. Five years from now, we may have developed that vaccine, that treatment, those infrastructure where, yeah, we, we have a reasonable trade-off and can accept uh, certain, um, a certain death rate because that's the, the nature of things. But right now when it's novel, it's incredibly risky to take that approach. One of the, the another question that, that we always hear is, you know, we, we've seen on the news and things how how horrific and terrible this was in Italy and some of the other European countries. Uh, but here in America, it's not been a big deal. I mean, like unless you are in New York or, uh, you know, Seattle or one of these major cities, uh, you know, the data seems to show that that this just isn't as bad as we thought it would be. Right. Well, there's a couple things with that. First of all, the data it 
itself, because this is novel, the tracking mechanisms are not as sophisticated as we might want them to be, which means where there's always this argument, are we undercounting or overcounting um, the deaths? And because the deaths historically from um, that we were counting were in the hospitals, we weren't going out and counting things in like elderly homes. And, and as you know, people who die in elderly homes constitute a lot of these deaths. We weren't counting those, including those. COVID causes a lot of complications like um, heart failure, stroke that is COVID related. Somebody was healthy, they got COVID and then they had a heart attack. That's not heart disease, that's COVID, but it takes us a while to get those death certificates and recalculate them. And so there's an estimate that the existing death total we have is now anywhere from 15 to 40% low. So if you figure we have 80,000 deaths, we're probably closer to 90 to 110. And this is not the US either. Italy had the same revisions, the United Kingdom. This isn't you know, a conspiracy or anything like that just in the United States. This is something that because it's novel, we're still learning. The second thing with the deaths you touched upon is that it's highly local and these time delay, it didn't come, we're used to seeing the United States as a game board, right? It's like, it's playing Fortress America. Everyone's playing the game <laughs> board at once. You're moving all the pieces at the same time. This shows up in different areas and focuses there and then spreads out. So early on, you're right, Seattle, um, San Francisco, New York, those are where the clusters were and other parts of the country were doing fine. As it spread out, those other parts of the country are accumulating those cases and they're getting to their own point where their own healthcare systems are being collapsed. Now, we tend to focus on things like Italy um, and New York City, where there's 30,000 dead in a couple of weeks, and that's just tremendous. But it's really the hundreds of deaths here and there in small rural outbreaks. And I'll tell you about one I'm familiar with, Albany, Georgia. Very small town in southern Georgia, 75,000 people, extremely rural. It's probably an hour away from any freeway. Um, and they had... Uh, 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 what seemed like a small outbreak at first, it was um, two funerals had shared the same sort of wake cookout after the funeral. So they had several families together for oh. a picnic slash cookout. And from that one spot, it has now grown to, I think, 3,000 infected cases and over 300 dead, maybe 250 to 300 dead in a town of 75,000. That's not a lot of people. That's the kind of outbreaks that are now popping up in uh, in different areas. And if you're not in Albany, you won't hear about that because it's a small town. But if you're in Albany, it's very, very, um, you know, people who have died, you know, family members who have been sickened and are recovering. It's very present. So this, I think as we go along this, this kind of spot effect is going to nationalize. So it's no longer seen as a New York thing or an Albany, Georgia thing. It's an everywhere thing, but that takes time. And this creates this lagging perception of, I don't know anyone sick yet. I haven't seen anyone die. Well, I think that's coming and it will be what I call the nationalization of the virus. The virus is going to become something everyone becomes familiar with, but because of these time lags at first, people may experience it in different ways. I, th I think it's kind of like in, in when you're in a LARP org, there's always some like group like a dead man's hand or there's yeah. always like this group of characters that go around and, and if you cross them, you die or they they are wielding their powers together to get what they want and everybody fears them and you don't understand why. And you're like, well, if they're so evil, why don't you guys just go and just roll? Just go roll them. Just go roll them. And you don't get it until you're at yeah. the same game as them. And then you see them and you watch the way that they sort of bully or psychologically bully or socially bully or, or whatever just manipulate the and, and you see it you see it fi you finally see it and it's not this abstract thing anymore and you go oh that's actually really dangerous 
<laughs> you know, yeah. my character could and die. <laughs> part of the, part of the problem with this is um, it's kind of like you know you're you're playing a game and we can use World of Darkness, right? COVID nineteen has obfuscate six. Right. It's an elder level obfuscate power. It is not easily seen. You can't just walk around and see it at the game spot. Plus, even if you have aspects, you need to have advanced, you know, you need to get to the level where you can see it. Part of the problem with the virus is putting in place the mechanisms to see it. And we talk about testing and contact tracing. That's like getting state level aspects. Like if your states had character sheets, until a state buys up its aspects, so to speak, if I can use that phrase, it's not going to be able to see where COVID is. And you may have this perception that there aren't many cases. Well, that's because there's not much testing. And so there's all these interacting influences that tend to give us reason to say, well, maybe it's, I mean, it's, and it's also human nature, right? It's, I, I, we don't want it to be as bad as we fear, nor am I suggesting sensationalizing or, or getting panicked over it, but you need to sort of soberly look at what you know and then understand what you don't know and give a, understand the viruses in that space that you may be overlapping those two. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about what we know then about how to since because we're we're talking about then these responses like what do we know about uh, pandemic responses? There are different types. Uh, you know what what works, what doesn't, what are we doing right. here? Yeah, please. Great question. It's kind of like when a new game releases. It could be an online game like WoW, or it could be a new version of World of Darkness. People think they have builds that are going to be great for that game. They they design these builds and these pandemic responses are kind of like builds. They take a certain view of the game, they take a certain combination of attributes, and they try and go play the game. Now, when we started in March, there were five. Um, there was something called the People's War, which is what China used. It's a very militaristic, quarantine-heavy, very heavy-handed, uh, strict isolation and quarantine. We've kind of heard about that. Only one other country has tried that, Malaysia. Um, there was there was obviously business as usual, which was a pandemic response of, well, we're just going to keep doing what we do and not worry about it too much. Um, and then there was one called the fire break. And the fire break was sort of, well, we know we need to socially distance and wear masks, but we're going to just encourage people and do voluntary um, mechanisms. Business as usual and fire break proved to be completely ineffective uh, against the virus. And so what you have is as people go out and play games and they realize fortitude doesn't work really as I thought it did. It's not this, you know, it's not this going to save me <laughs> in the game or the, 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 the rules of the game are different than what I thought people have abandoned these pandemic responses and what they've centered on now in, as I said, the people's war has not been used by many, but there's two that have kind of become, or two and a half that have become the leading. The main one you see in South Asia is called, I, I call it pandemic panopticon. These are countries that have past experience with SARS, and it's all about getting awareness using um, tracking with mobile phones, uh, high amounts of data, ludicrous amounts of testing. They really try and understand where every single person is, and they have the benefit of their privacy laws are different, so they can harvest all this information, like a panopticon where someone stands in the middle and can see where everyone is. That's how they want to treat the virus. They want to stand in the middle and inform everyone where the other people who are infected are. This wouldn't work in North America or Europe with the privacy laws we have. HIPAA. The, um, <laughs> yeah. So, so you're it's, saying. It's, I mean, it's very difficult to release the kind of information in the U.S. that South Korea does when it was tracing those clubs. What you're basically referring to is this idea that, like, I would get a text message that says, Jason Hughes has COVID-19, and then I would know, don't go around Jason Hughes. And even more than that, you would be walking down the street and it would say that guy in that house over there on the second floor 
has COVID. And you would self think of it this way. The reason the pandemic panopticon works is instead of isolating everyone, you know who you need to get away from. So you self move around the infected cases. The population begins um, moving away from these infected cases and then they make sure the infected get services. So they're not you know, right. left. Okay. But, but that, that is why they're able to stay mostly open. Yeah, we we could never do that here in the no. U.S. because of, no. like like HIPAA, you know, with with us in in our nursing homes, it was difficult for us to even figure out how can we notify families that someone in the building had COVID nineteen because even that could let in- alone strangers who have no aren't even family. Yeah, right. Yeah. So the other method that was tried by a few countries but has largely been abandoned now is called induced herd immunity, and you'll hear this in the news. Um, it's got a legion of core followers. This is like, I hate to say Nordic lore, but there's always the people talking about the Swedish model. And Sweden's <laughs> the one that's still holding on to this endorsed herd immunity and they love it and they swear by it and they'll, they'll die, defend it. Every country that has touched this, uh, touched this method has abandoned it or Sweden's the only one holding on. And its theory is we're going to let people go around that are young and healthy, go around and get exposed. We're going to protect the old people and we're going to build up this kind of concept of herd immunity. The main problems with it is we don't know if we get immunity from this. So right off the bat, we're assuming something in this rule book that we haven't seen that rule yet. And so we're assuming that rule is there. If it's not there, this whole build's gone. The second thing is we found out we can't protect the elderly. They've had, you know, they still have the same deaths in Sweden with the elderly homes. And the third thing is it turns out those who are young and healthy get affected as well. So most countries have abandoned that, leaving the only remaining response is something called the hammer and the dance. And that's a little bit tricky, but it involves two phases where you sort of like you recognize the enemy has obfuscate and you don't. So you lock down everything. The purpose of the hammer lockdown is to basically get people out of range of these. We talked about these virus particles. You socially isolate. You shut everything down. But during the hammer phase, during that lockdown, you're not sitting idly by. You're spending XP on your sheet. You're buying up your testing, you're buying up your contact tracing, you're buying up the abilities on your sheet that will let you see and punch through the viruses obfuscate. Then when you have those capabilities, you go into what's called the dance phase. And the dance is where you reopen everything back up, but you now have these abilities to, oh, there's the level six obfuscate virus lurking in the corner trying to be dark and scary. We see them now, We we can react to that appropriately. The majority of countries that have fared very, very well are doing a version of the hammer and the dance. Germany's doing it. Um, most of Eastern Europe's doing it. A lot of like Vietnam's doing it. Australia, New Zealand. These countries that have done well, they locked down heavily. They spent on their character sheets. They spent the XP to build up these capabilities. They did massive public education. And now that they have sheets that can, in effect, see the virus, they're going into the dance phase, which is why you're hearing about them opening up their economies again and getting back involved. It's not because they're um, they're just opening it because they want to. They've sort of earned the right to see where this virus is and be able to react to it. And then in the dance phase, it's much more like the pandemic panopticon. If you see someone who's infected, you can isolate them. You can you can keep them from spreading to thousands of people and if something happens in the dance phase that it looks like it's losing control, you go back in the hammer phase. So you can go back and forth between the hammer and the dance. And that's the method most states are using that are, um, I would call it sort of like California, um, New York, Massachusetts, Arkansas a little bit. Um, they're using the hammer and the dance phase. A lot of the Southern states are, are, sort of using it, but they're not spending the XP on their sheet. Right. Yeah. In, in Tennessee, we yeah. hammered for like two weeks and then we were like, let's dance. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And it's it I use the and it's 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 very much like um you know, I've got this shiny new character sheet. I've, I've bought a few powers on it. Let's go tweak the Methuselah's ear and see what happens. Let's go no. pick a fight with something well outside our league. And it's like any car crash where you see where you're just sitting at the side and you're like, oh, that's not going to go well. And unfortunately, that's where we're at right now, it seems, with a, a lot of states. I think, would, would you agree that some of the some of the trouble, though, is that uh, so much of this seems to be um, very regional? You know, like, like it's difficult, for example, to compare uh, New York to Chattanooga, just as it's it's equally difficult to even compare Chattanooga to Cleveland, Tennessee, 30 minutes up the road. Yeah, so are you anywhere near Trousdale, Tennessee? Does uh, that ring a bell? It, it doesn't. It doesn't ring a bell. Trousdale so. County? Okay, Trousdale County, and this is where I, the regionalization, as it spreads into these regions, you may be fine, 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 and then in a heartbeat go to bad. I'm looking at a chart of Trousdale County from Johns Hopkins University where they had under 200 cases until April 30th. And then they shot up in a nearly vertical line to over 1,500 cases in a matter of four days. Somebody went to five nightclubs in one night. <laughs> I don't know if there are five nightclubs in Trousdale County. I'm not presuming. I would also like to say, um, who has the energy the, to go to five of, nightclubs? Like, that's just like... The I, rate of... And I think you're going to see a lot of these. There was actually an, uh, uh, people can look online if they want to find it. NBC released a White House report that is from May 7th. That is the White House owned task force. And it had the top 10 counties that were growing the fastest. All of these were rural counties. It's moved out now. Again, that timing effect, that time delay, it's gone from the big cities. It's traveled. It's percolated. It's getting, and now we've reopened as these, think about this. When we went into lockdown in late March through early April, it wasn't in Trousdale County. So people went into lockdown saying, I don't see anything. They were in lockdown and not aware that it was beginning to infiltrate their area. So they're in lockdown and they don't see anything. Now they go outside and there's a bunch of obfuscated level six people hanging around waiting to you know, get them, they don't see that. And that's the problem that's happening in a lot of these states that are reopening. It's the false hurricane, you know, in, in, in Florida and South Carolina and stuff, they talk about this idea that like they evacuate for a hurricane and then right at the last minute, the hurricane changes direction and it doesn't hit. And so next everybody, time. everybody goes home. And then when the next hurricane heads their way and they're like evacuate, nobody leaves. And then they all get hit by the hurricane. I think a lot of it too, you've mentioned partisan angles and part of the difficulty is that in the US, and I'm not picking a side here, red or blue, but in the US we have been habituated to sort of being able to argue our way through any problem. Any policy or thing is really at the end of the day an argument between two sides. And what we're facing right now with the pandemic is an externality. It has its own rules and you can't argue those rules. Those rules are not subject to an opinion poll or who's popular or who's not. And that's why many countries, not just the US, many countries have struggled with this because it's sort of like you're playing the pandemic's game now. And if you aren't playing by its rules, you're going to lose. And you can argue with DST and go, well, I had this great concept and it was really cool on role playing and would have created all this story. But if you aren't following the rules, you're going to be on the wrong side of an encounter. Yeah. How would you, so how would you say, uh, I mean, Obviously, one of the, the other things that you hear hammered so much about this is that, you know, this can't be a one size fits all, you know, solution. The hammer and dance can't be one size fits all equally 
all across the U.S. all at once. Uh, do you do you agree with that, or do you think that that it needs to be? Yeah, there, there's actually we have metrics now that quantify how successful you're going to be at 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 being in the dance, and these are population based metrics. So they scale for higher and lower populations, and you can think of it. Um, as if your testing is at a level where 5% of your tests or lower are positive, that means you're testing broad enough for all the dynamics of your area. You're rural, they're separated. However it is, if your positive tests are 5% or lower, it means you're getting a big enough testing pool that you're catching not just who has it, but those who don't have it. And that's one metric we can use to say, okay, our testing is sufficient. In contact tracing, we know that we need about 30 people per 100,000 contact tracers. So that's an easy hiring math, right? How many people do I have in the state? How many contact tracers? That gives us the means to say we have enough contact tracers. The numbers for those, what, what, what drives those numbers are going to look very different in Tennessee to California because their populations are different, their sizes are different. But those give us some metrics to then individually open up. See, I think in the states, Unlike other countries, because we don't have a national response, every state is going to be doing its own hammer in the dance. And that's probably good because that some states are going to be in a different circumstance and they should act differently. The problem is these states are still connected. We like to talk about Tennessee and Georgia as if there's not I-75 running up and down through them. Right. We talk about New York and Florida as if there isn't airplanes going between them or maybe not as much anymore. But people move around a lot and this virus moves with those people. So as much as we have uh, probably can have individual circumstances for each state, we need to be very aware that this crosses states very, very quickly. How do you feel that we've, we've done, uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> so we've talked about what should be done. And the more that we talk, the more, it sounds like maybe we've, we haven't done so well here in Tennessee. We started opening back up last week, you know, because I mean, there's less than a dozen cases in Bradley County, Tennessee, where we're at. Right. And so we're safe. So, you know, everyone has went back out because of my liberties yeah. and, uh, at, you know, but like the day that the, the day that the world opened back up here in, in, uh, the Chattanooga area, I mean, you'd have thought it was Christmas if you saw the, the parking so lot at the mall cars. and no, no one was wearing masks. It was terrifying. It was like the, the government said, yeah, all clear. <sighs> well, and that's, that's the challenge is people isolate out of fear but they gain confidence to go back outside from a credible institution like the government. And so that, that does have a factor. <laughs> Think, but I want to be Did clear. you really just say that? <laughs> a, credi what? a credible institution like the U S government. <laughs> there's a big, there's a big asterisk there. <laughs> um, but you, you, one of the things, when I say the pandemic has its own rule book, that rule book does not favor liberals or conservatives. And, and we've seen this worldwide, not just in the U S it doesn't matter how good you thought your system was and how sophisticated your response was. If you didn't play by the rules correctly, you got hammered. I mean, we can argue that um, there are many countries in Europe that have better healthcare systems than the U.S. That's a separate discussion for a separate day, but let's accept the premise. The United Kingdom fared miserably at this because their initial build, their approach was this induced herd immunity, and they were late getting into mobilization and lockdown. They've been hammered, and they haven't dug out of the hole yet. Um, France, Italy, Spain, Sweden, these countries are all struggling at similar rates of deaths per capita as the U.S. It's not like, you know, and, and it's not like in the U.S. you can say, well, here's a, um, uh, a liberal state that's doing really good and here's a conservative state that's doing bad. It's mixed. Take Arkansas. 
Um, I forget the governor's name in Arkansas, but he took an approach where he was, and he's conservative. It's a very conservative state. He was very strong on public education. He was very upfront about how he was communicating, and he was working with businesses to voluntarily shut them down. Arkansas, I can compare Arkansas favorably to Norway and Finland. So if you ever wanted to hear Arkansas compared favorably to a Nordic country, (laughs) here's your chance. They did very, very well. California has done very well. In contrast with New York, because California shut down earlier, they took it more seriously, they got their lockdown in place, New York has not performed well at all. It's been kind of a disaster, and partly it's, again, we're learning the rule book as we go. The trick is now we know a lot more of the rule book than we did in January, February, and March. So as we go forward, it gets a little harder to justify not playing by the rules, and the consequences, if they emerge, are going to be a lot harder to say, well, we didn't know. And I think that's where a lot of um, reopenings that are happening now in the states are probably going to regret it in a few weeks when they have to close back down in the face of an out. Now, I'd love to be wrong on this. My work is all sorts of bad things, and I'm generally happy when I'm wrong because that means less bad things are happening. Right. I would love to be wrong on this, but I think a lot of the states that have opened early are going to have to close again. Now, Donald Trump yesterday said we've prevailed. I, I'm guessing then you're, you think that we haven't. <laughs> uh, no, I... I, I um, <laughs> Anyone can stand in front of a room and claim they are prince, but um, that doesn't really let them be prince or run the court or um, (laughs) to borrow this analogy or get the benefits of it. Um, No, we haven't prevailed. I think, and I I think he he later clarified that he was speaking about the testing metric. And I want to be clear, we haven't even prevailed on the testing Uh, metric. No, we have not. We've gotten better in testing, but we need probably three times what we have. Now, I also want to be clear. I could spend an entire episode talking about the failures of President Trump and the administration, but not all the failures are his alone. There were decisions made by the CDC very early that botched how tests were designed and deployed. That led to the shortage of tests. There's been an absence of um, some of the governor early actions were counterproductive and caused more problems. There's a certainly we have if you look at a a catastrophe there's a series of mistakes along the way, and we can go back and document 10, 12, 15 different mistakes that have all contributed to this point, but certainly at the heart of it all is the lack of leadership at the national level that is being displayed in other countries when they have a national response. For To some extent, we are now at a state-level response because there is no national response. There's no national plan. There's no right. national coordination. There's no national guidance. It's pretty much do what you will and good luck. And that's created now this patchwork effect, which contributes to all this confusion. And are we shifting the goalposts? Where are we at? Are we prevailing or not? Right. The testing thing, you know, it's strange because, uh, Carrie, you had a doctor's appointment last week and they were test, they were doing drive through COVID-19 testing. Like just, you could just drive up and, you know, pay the hundred bucks or whatever and get tested for COVID-19. And yet we have nursing homes that are in the middle of outbreaks with it who uh, are are not being allowed to test every employee and every resident. And, and what's happening there is kind of when I mentioned that the rule book is still, we're still learning the rule book. Now imagine that your game masters or storytellers are issuing rules addendum on a rule book that's always modifying, but they're behind the curve. So when the CDC issues guidance on who can be tested at say February, because we don't have enough tests, that circumstance may reverse, but the doctors who read that guidance, the doctors who memorized that guidance, they're not seeing the new guidance. They're still operating under the old rules. And so you have this constantly fluid dynamic from February all the way through now where everything is constantly changing. 
and a doctor in one place may remember a guidance from a month ago and the doctor down the hall is using the guidance from last night and it's telling him two very different things and all of these things contribute to the difficulty we've had right and then those those things make excuses for people to justify numbers and and not analyze data properly because they say things like well that spike went up because they approved the testing in that area and things like that one thing one thing i can say about the data and the numbers is that um, over time, it has consistently proven more serious and, it, you know, there's been kind of this effort. We talked about uh, broken stairs earlier, like broken stairs, you know, you cannot neg the pandemic. You cannot condescend the pandemic. You cannot get the <laughs> pandemic to feel bad about itself and then it's not going to do what it's due. You know, right. we're used to this rhetorical approach where we say, ah, that pandemic, it's not as bad as the flu. Like the pandemic cares. You're comparing it to the flu. <laughs> It'll when you just look get at data worse. Over time, Don't do that. Every, every uh, measure that is put out there is broken through. So in a way, even though any individual piece of data could be argued, the trend over time in the last four months has been predictions made two months ago that it wouldn't be so bad have been broken through and now they have a new one but you kind of got to ask at what point do we stop trying to say this isn't going to be bad and just deal with what it is right. and i'm not saying to panic but i'm saying deal with what it is and what we know and then even then if that were the case if we were to do that we would be dealing with a lot of just the citizens of of america who are so confused by all those moving goalposts and things that they still would think well it's safe to go out yeah and I use the, with the goalpost, I use a, a model of like kind of getting through college, right? To be successful in the pandemic response is like finishing classwork to graduate from college. If you don't do the classwork, you can't graduate. Um, people think it's like shifting the goalpost. Like I can argue this and I can kind of um, maybe take the final pass fail or do some extra credit and, you know, talk to the professor. They're used to sort of arguing with it. And it's really, and this is why it's not necessarily a liberal or conservative response. It is if you do these things that we have proven to be successful, you can reopen the economy. That's the whole point of the dance. You can get what you want, but the problem is you have to work for it. And I think a lot of people have wanted to quickly jump ahead to get the benefits without having put the work in. And that's where we're going to see the problems arise. Uh, I know that it's, it could be a whole show of its own, but do you have any quick thoughts on the economy connection to all of this? With the economy, we, 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 tend to think that the government can turn off and on the economy, but the economy is really based on two things, people and confidence. And when the pandemic began rolling through with the collapse of Italy, the closure of festivals, the closure of concerts, the cancellation of sports rigs, the stock market dropped, the confidence of the U.S. people went through the floor. People self-isolated on their fearful. own before they had to. Yeah. So they began, it's not really true that the government shut down the economy. The economy shut itself down. And until there's confidence again, the economy won't, you can't, you can't, um, you can say that a store has to be open, but you can't force people to go to that store if they're fearful. Now, people who trust the government and say, okay, it's open, we're fine. They're going back out and we may have a small window of what looks good because, you know, it's this time delay effect. But my fear is, is that by going too early and starting too soon, We've allowed people to get that hope up, and then we're going to have to take it away again when the, the pandemic rears again, and that's going to make the confidence even worse. You only really get one shot to instill confidence with a, hey, we're safe to reopen. And if you had to reopen and then close, now you're not going to have the confidence two months from now, three months from now, six weeks from now, whenever, to say, oh, no, no, this time it's really safe. So the economy, and I, I'm not underplaying the impact of the economy. I don't like the comparison of its lives or the economy because the economy – 
depends on lives. There's, there, there is the, the people are the economy. You can't separate them out. But I think our approach has done more to harm confidence than it has to help it. It sounds like you're saying we're reopening too soon. And if we are, what is what does the future look like then? Are we, are we going to school in September or August? What, what's <laughs> I don't um, I think so. Other countries that have successfully done the homework or put the XP on the sheet to get these powers, they're going into the dance. They're reopening. They're getting to sort of a sort of normal. I don't want to overstate it that everything's the same as it was, but they're getting back to a new normal. We did not spend the XP on the sheets and we're opening thinking that we're going to be fine and we're going to get punked by this virus again. And it's, it's, it's happening now and it's going to roll over the next three to four weeks. We're going to see what I call wave 1.5. It's not that we beat the first wave and this is wave two, which is in fall. This is a roll up of the wave that we should have contained by staying closed for just a little bit longer. We're going to now have a rising death total. It's 80,000 now. I predict it'll probably be close to 120 to 140,000 by mid June, maybe late June. And what that's going to do is it's going to completely destroy the confidence that this thing has been contained. So instead of opening things back up in June and looking forward to fall and saying, yes, we can do school again because we have confidence, we're going to be still dealing with the the problem of now into the summer. And anything that is, you know, planning wise, you can't open school and make a decision a week beforehand. They're going to be deciding whether they're going to open schools in the fall in July and June. And if they're looking around at June and no one's comfortable or confident, they're going to plan to keep them closed. Um, gaming conventions. I know a lot of people here are probably thinking mm. about Dragon Con and Gen Con. They're towards the end of the summer. Gen Con is like July 30th and Dragon Con is in September. It may be a little better off. It, I. It'll be interesting to see because remember what causes this virus. So even if we get to new normal, there are certain things that create this, this concept of as people speak, the virus load in the room accumulates and the longer you stay in an area with the more virus, the more likely you are to get infected. Now imagine the dealer's room at Dragon Con or the escalator where they do the costume ball. That <laughs> type of behavior is probably not going to be allowed again until we have a vaccine or a really good handle on things because the risk is too great. And this is where I think even as we if we even if we were doing well, I would say it's kind of iffy whether the conventions would be good by uh, Gen Con and Dragon Con. But with this botched rollout, I don't think people are going to be confident to travel and they're going to want their money back. They're going to want to know. And I think you're going to have it's going to I would bet those both get canceled. I'd love to be wrong. I've gone to Dragon Con a lot. Um, I'd love for them to both go on. I think Gen Con's definitely canceled. I give Dragon Con probably 75 percent chance of being canceled. I'm, I'm surprised Gen Con has not been canceled yet. To be honest, anywhere you have a large group of people and there's what thousands of people there, 70,000 in the same spot, <laughs> you are talking about a potential catastrophic situation. If five infected people go in there over the course of four days, I mean, this one guy infected 5,500 people by a couple hours at nightclubs in South Korea. This is bigger than a nightclub. Yeah. You know, there's legal liability, there's ethical liability, and then there's personal safety. I go to Gen Con. I'm going to come back. Am I going to isolate for two weeks before I, I, I meet my family or deal with my kids or go out and play games with my tabletop friends to show them all the new goodies? Am I going to want to show them the book I got at Gen Con? Maybe there's still something on this. These fears are going to linger, and the higher the death rate gets, the higher the fear will be. And if we don't have a solid containment, I just don't see these um, in, in play going forward. 
How do you think that this affects uh, the gaming industry in general? I mean, obviously, a lot of people with tabletop games have moved online. We we did a whole show about the the different online Zoom. tools and things, uh, but you know, like how do how do you think this affects gaming in the future? Well, obviously, anything that is computer based or can be moved online has a, a workaround. But that's not the entirety of gaming, and you can't take a LARP and just put it online and have the same experience. You, you can know, try you're just sitting costume behind the Zoom, <laughs> but that's not that's not really <laughs> doing right. the same thing. Um, I think, especially when it comes to anywhere people get together, LARPs, Boffer LARPs, um, network tabletop games in the convention center, they're going to have to redesign what they do, keeping in mind these this new normal of the more people you have in an enclosed area, there for a long period of time, the greater the risk of infection and then spreading between there. So I think you're going to have to see LARPs reconsider how they're they're using site locations or how they're playing games. Um, you know, if it's a small LARP, that's probably okay. If it's 10 people, they can probably handle it. But, you know, these big 100-person LARPs or 50-person LARPs where everyone's in a room for six hours and it's all enclosed and everyone's hot and sweaty because they got costumes on, that may not fly. Uh, and speaking of flying, I think you're going to really see a challenge of these concept of, and this is hard because this is something I want to participate in, I fly across the country to go to a marquee game is probably not going to happen again for two years at least yeah. because the risk of going to a foreign, a, a, a faraway place on travel, exposing yourself to all these things and then coming back is going to create these networks where I don't think the LARPs are going to be comfortable doing that. That whole concept of blockbuster may be over if they can't figure out a different way to deliver it while still being safe. So, I mean, again, I'm focusing on LARPs here because those are people centric, right. um, but the same thing with tabletop games or uh, uh, playing card games that are done in conventions. Wow. Mushes are safe. <laughs> yeah, you could still play by. Yeah, let's go play back to the mushrooms. It's all about the typing speed. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> you you had mentioned earlier. I don't, I'm not sure if folks really picked up on it, but you mentioned earlier that you actually had it, uh, that you caught COVID nineteen, um, and you said that you just had kind of a moderate case. But but would you mind maybe just sharing a little bit uh, about what you know what that experience was like? I have a very good log of what happened because the entire month of March, I only left where I was staying three times in the month. And so I knew exactly when I was outside of the house and for how long. And at about April 8th, I, I was actually doing one of my ask me anything lives on COVID for the infomal. And I had this huge wave of nausea go on. I don't normally have nausea. I thought I was going to have to disconnect before I puked live on Facebook. That probably <laughs> would have gotten me a bunch of viewers, but it would not have been a good scene. Um, and then I had this crushing body pain and fatigue and literally slept for 16 hours. I thought it was food poisoning. I didn't have a cough. I didn't have a fever. The next day it happened again, another wave of nausea, very strong nausea, this crushing fatigue. And that's when I was like, okay, something's up. Um, fortunately, my sister is an infectious disease specialist. So I've got like the, <laughs> the level five contact on my sheet that I called her up. I described to her symptoms and she goes, you have COVID. I mean, this is before I even got tested. I'm like, I hope not. And what it was is the experience was it's not like anything you read about where there's a set of a few symptoms and um, you're sort of, uh, you know, you can predict it. It's a, a really complex. There were like 15 different symptoms I had and they were starting at different times. I didn't even get the cough till a couple days later. And there's this window of time. You mentioned earlier how fast people can decline. I was not feeling well from Wednesday through Sunday. And then from Sunday, I began crashing and I was losing my, I was getting confused. I was losing memory. I was getting dizzy. I was coughing. I had a death wheeze rattle. 
And it got so bad that by Thursday, I went to the emergency room and they put me in the hospital. I was in the hospital for five days. Mm-hmm. So I don't remember much of this because there's something I call Corona coma. If anyone's, <laughs> or if, if anyone's had mm-hmm. mono, it's much like mono or kind of like torpor. Your body shuts you down for 16 hours, 14, 16 hours a day with this crushing fatigue that you just, you don't have dreams. You don't remember much. It's like taking a big healthy dose of cough syrup. You can't stay awake. And I had that for, um, I was in the hospital for five days. I was released. And then I still had it for a week and a half after I mentioned how long it takes to recover. That has been probably the, the hardest thing of this is, you know, I don't remember being in the hospital much. So that was one thing, but, um, getting out of the hospital, you think, Oh, now I'm better. I'll be recovered. It has taken me three weeks of, um, recovery to build back up lung capacity to build back up endurance. I mean, I've been talking the whole hour, so it doesn't sound like, you know, I'm hurting, but there were a time two weeks ago where I couldn't even talk for a full hour without losing. um, I was getting dizzy and and lightheaded. I can't walk as far. I can't walk as fast. Um, It's getting better, but it's a very slow, long recovery. And this is what's called a moderate case. I don't think I was ever severe. I was never in jeopardy of my life. I never had an incubator. I never had, or incubator, probably the incubator, different thing. Um, (laughs) I never had a ventilator. You know, I wasn't what you would call a severe case, but I was in the hospital um, and for basically they kept me there for five days. I never had a fever. So again, huh. it, we, we are only learning the rule book as we go along. So the things that says you're going to have a fever and you're going to have a cough, that's what everyone thought in February or March. Now the thinking is it's going to start with gastrointestinal and you'll notice it by having diarrhea, nausea, those sort of gastrointestinal issues. We're still learning as we go. And the big thing we're learning is how hard the, re- I mean, asymptomatic carriers who, who don't really notice it, they seem to be fine. But if you have a moderate case or even a mild case, it can take weeks of really reduced uh, capability. Uh, you know, this is the first week. So I went in the hospital April 16th. I got out the next Monday. This is the first time since probably April 18th, 19th that I've had even something close to a full week or a, a partial week. And it's been that long recovering to be able to get back into effectiveness. And this is, I think, going to be what impacts a lot of people and they're going to struggle with because they're not dead. So happy day there. Right. But everyone's going around saying, oh, you just had a mild and moderate. I wish they would read these powers were horribly named. Like whatever game designer <laughs> decided to name this effect mild and moderator should have their, their design license revoked. It should be described as you're going to feel like shit for a couple of days and suffer for weeks is mild and moderate is you're going to go to the hospital but you're not going to cough up blood. So congratulations on that, but pretty much everything else. And these, I mean, these are the things we're just beginning to find out is how hard it is to recover from this. And, and we're learning that, that folks who are asymptomatic carriers can end up never getting sick at all. And they just, they Mm -hmm. have it for a few weeks and then it goes away, but they were never sick. Exactly. And we don't know, for example, I don't know if I'm immune. I've been through this experience now. I've lost a month of my life. I don't remember but 10 days in all of April. But I don't know if I'm immune going forward. Um, I probably have antibodies, but we don't know if the antibodies protect me for a year, five years, two months. We don't know. So there's this real doubt to say, like, if I get through the flu in a year, I'm like, "Ah, well, boy, that, that was terrible. But I'm glad it's (laughs) over. It's done. I'm not going to get again. Or we go out and get a measles vaccine or something. We're good. There's this uncertainty that you don't know if you're going to get it again. That's really hard to deal with. Yeah. 
Well, Tim, I really appreciate you being willing to share your story and also even more importantly, share your, your insight and intellect. And I hope that folks can, can maybe take this and, and make more educated decisions. Um, you know, I also know that this wasn't a perfect gaming topic, but I also feel like uh, we would be a bad show if we didn't talk about things that were affecting gaming. And so, gamers. Uh, but we really appreciate you st- you know, stopping in and, and sharing your, your time with us. Uh, if folks want to learn more uh, about you or your research or, or the info mullet, where can, where can they go? Where can they follow you and, and, and get more informations? So the easiest way to follow me is on Facebook. Just look up the info mullet, I N F O M U L L E T on Facebook. We also have a blog page infomullet.com. And from there you can, you can begin following our research twice a week. We do it a live ask me anything video. It's about an hour long. People ask their questions and we put posts up on Facebook. We put posts up on the blog and uh, that's the best way to follow it. I also have a Twitter at InfoMullet, um, and, and we, we, we share things on Twitter as well. That's great. And you break up down, break things down, I think in ways that are really uh, easy to understand for folks. Let's be honest. These are complex systems and complex uh, thoughts and informations. And and we are being bombarded by different interpretations of it from all over. All the time. I always feel like I'm going to have an anxiety attack whenever anyone starts talking. (laughs) And so So, you, you, I did not feel that way when you talked. So thank you. No, no problem. And a lot of what we do on the InfoMullet is not just try and provide context to news, but give people tools to evaluate the news on their own. We do a lot of work with media literacy. We do a lot of work with teaching people the basics of systems thinking, the basic of system structure, so that they can apply this themselves and sort of, we don't like to think of ourselves as a fact checking because that's just telling you an answer. We're like, here's the context and here's the tools that you can use yourself to go out and be more informed and make better decisions with your uh, on the information, whether it's COVID-19 or, or gaming. Currently, you're primarily COVID-19 because it's primarily the news everywhere. But before coronavirus, back in, in December and January and stuff like, for example, there was a lot of a lot of uh, looks and studies at some of the the uh, the disturbances going on in China with the protests and, and the universities there and things like that. And so yep. it, it's not meant to be a coronavirus blog. Yeah. The, the blog is basically complex events that are happening in our world broken down to provide context. That's everything from insurgencies or uh, foreign, foreign policy to domestic policy. We do cover politics, but it's not in a partisan way. We're not trying to replicate some news channel. We're trying to break down what's going on, say, in the impeachment proceedings, what's going on in the economic recovery bills, what's going on in these debates about healthcare in the presidential election. We break those down to give more context without trying to pick an obvious side other than this is what we know and what the evidence shows. Yeah, it's it's really great. I've, I've really enjoyed uh, backing you there uh, on your Patreon. And, and I like, uh, I'm really thankful for for the work that you're doing. All right. I appreciate that. Thank you. And thank you for having me on here tonight. It's been a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, that's it great. Thank our, you. It's our pleasure. Hopefully we'll, we'll have you back and maybe we can talk, focus a little bit more on actually gaming itself and, and uh, game design and, and some LARP <laughs> theory. That'll be awesome. Sounds fun. Well, all right, let's go to game wrap. Well, that was pretty awesome. It was. 
does, actually. Yeah, we want to really thank thank Tim for stopping by. And, and for real, go check out infomullet.com. Find him on Facebook. It's really, really awesome and fascinating and interesting. And uh, he's very knowledgeable. All right, so I'm going to admit something. Yeah. I was nervous about this episode. Really? Well, you were like, we're going to talk about... COVID-19! And I was like, oh, <laughs> no, what are you doing? And you were like, you know, like, with gaming terms. And I was like, no, this is bad. <laughs> but I, I actually really, really enjoyed talking to him. And I understood everything he said. But yeah. I could tell he was way smarter than me. <laughs> and that was nice. You know? <laughs> Made me feel so warm knowing that he was so smart. He was so smart. <laughs> well, no, but like, I didn't. I didn't, but I also didn't feel like he was condescending as he was right. explaining things. So that was really nice. Well, all right. Well, let's, uh, you know, let's remind people, you know, you can find us on uh, Stitcher and iTunes and Spotify and anywhere else that you listen to your stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can uh, go to honorrollpodcast.com to see our website. You can go to patreon.com slash honorrollpodcast to go become a patron of the show. Maybe Yay! get some free stuff and Yay! some shout outs. Obviously, you can follow us at Honor Roll Podcast on Twitter, and you can go to Facebook and find us there. We've got a group and a page where we uh, talk and share and do all this sort of fun stuff. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. Well, let's take a quick second yeah. before we go. Carrie, uh, you get one experience point for attendance. Yay. Thank you so much for playing the game. I also want to take a second to roll for you on the magic, uh, magic item chart okay. here. Oh, nice. You get a cardboard cutout of Donald Trump. That is appropriate. That's great. All right. Cool. That's not nice. All right. Well, join us next week when our topic is, uh, should we go buy a new lawnmower? What? Until next time, uh, I'm Ryan the curmudgeon, carries the legend. Jason is the favorite when he's here, but right now he's not. So remember, the only way to win at a role-playing game is to have fun. Have fun. The only way to win is to have fun with my friends.